Today's scripture is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 31. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks desire wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not to reduce to nothing, things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the ones who boast boast in the Lord. Once again, we welcome you here at Weston Park Baptist Church. Trust that through the service you might uh, experience God's presence, particularly now as we look to God's word. We've been thinking of the uh, series God coming towards us, that God is always the God who comes to us. No matter where we are in our lives, what season, God continues to come. There, there's always an advent in our life of God coming to us. Sometimes we lose track of that, but that's the, the story that we receive. So it comes, but it's not always super obvious. And so we think even of the Jesus story, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, little town outside of Jerusalem, obscure when he's born. Nobody even comes to check him out, essentially. We think of Nazareth. Jesus is raised in Nazareth. Interesting, that city, Nazareth, that town, isn't even mentioned in the Old Testament. So it's, it's completely out in the sticks. I mean, that's where it is. That, but that's where Jesus lived. That's where he was raised. And that's where he worked as a, as a common laborer. I mean, he, he worked as a carpenter, which meant he worked with wood, he worked with stone, at just his own little shop in his own little way. Nazareth, a few hundred people. So it's, it's littleness, that's where he is. And then, of course, he dies on Calvary. And again, Calvary, a, a little hill outside of Jerusalem in those days. So it's, his whole story is one of littleness, which means it can be missed. 
And so Jesus indeed was missed. He comes as the Messiah, but the nation of Israel essentially doesn't see him. They are looking for a conquering prince who will defeat the Romans. That's the mythology that was built up around the Messiah. He would come, this one, and he would defeat the oppressors. So that's what they were looking for. So when Jesus comes, they miss it completely because they're not expecting that. And, that with, and with the Greeks and the Romans, uh, the message of Christ, and particularly those who follow Christ, Paul, is, is, is just considered foolishness, we read. They, they, don't, they don't get it. The, the whole message seems crazy. So they, they miss. And so Coretto has a, a nice statement which suggests that we can also miss. And he writes, but for us who want noise, God is silence. The light is darkness. Darkness for us who want power, while God is meekness. Darkness for us who want pleasure, always pleasure, while God is service and gratitude and love, often painful love. So God comes in surprising ways. So when we think of God coming towards us, we need to be open to these serendipities that can happen in our lives that communicate God's presence with us. And so today the theme is that of God comes to us, comes down to us as we've been saying, but he comes in littleness. Even as Paul says, he comes in foolishness. So our text is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the whole chapter really, but we're looking at just a few verses, verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God comes in littleness. God comes in foolishness. So we've already seen, we think of Jesus' life, Jesus born in a stable and not in a palace. He's not linked to royalty immediately as people would want. A workman, a carpenter in a small village. Jesus comes in littleness. And as that is the truth, then that also becomes a symbol for us that God works in little ways in our own lives. God works in smallness. God works in littleness. God works, as Paul says, in foolishness. Interesting, the word there, for foolishness is related to our word moron, imagine. So that's, that's where we get it. It's foolish. So Jesus then becomes this symbol for us of coming and working in our world in ways that we are not anticipating and expecting, and then also in our own lives. So when we pray, Jesus, we want your will. Jesus, we want you to work for us. Jesus, we want you to hear our prayers we have certain things in mind that we want Jesus to do. But Jesus is always working in this way that is his will. His purpose is not our will, which can be seem to us strange. God works in, in ways that aren't just obvious. So Jesus as a symbol for us in our own littleness. So we need to be open to that because we can say well hey I prayed for this and I, did, I didn't get that. I wanted this and, and, and see God doesn't love me. He doesn't answer me. I wanted that reality, job, 
something for my family. I didn't get it. But we are wanting to put God in our box, and if he doesn't work in our box, then we say he's not working. Well, that's not the way it goes. So God chooses to work in littleness. God chooses to work in foolishness. So commentator Pryor writes, For the Son of God to be born in human form, then to grow up into manhood virtually unrecognized, to go about doing good and healing all kinds of sickness, to surrender his life into the hands of unscrupulous men, to die the death of crucifixion as a common criminal, he writes, all this defies human wisdom and understanding. It's a surprise, and so the Jewish community doesn't, they don't get him, and the Romans and the Greeks don't get him, because they're they're expecting a certain way the Messiah might come. Our Trinitarian God decides to come in a different way, in littleness. So C.S. Lewis talks about that in The Problem of Pain, and he describes it as divine humility. The divine humility that God, the creator of the universe, the Milky Way of the earth, chooses to show up in our world person to person in little ways. The suffering Savior, a crucified Messiah, seems totally strange, stupid. So the Greeks and Romans thought. As soon as Paul started talking about the resurrection, they started laughing at him and and they said, that's goofy, and they all just left. So divine humility. So it's not surprising then that this message of Christ, who receives it in his day? Well, we've already seen the story of the woman at the well, John 4, the Samaritan community, those who are on the margins, they are receptive. And it's those who are on the lower strata. Remember, it's a very class society, the first century in Israel. It's on the lower strata that people respond. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.26, Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Everybody's just ordinary, essentially. Paul says that's the way it is. And so it's, it's people, regular folk, those are the ones who are saying yes to Jesus in his day. Barclay writes in his writings that in the Roman Empire there were over 60 million slaves. Wow. 60 million slaves in that empire. That's how the empire functioned, on slavery. Many slaves, obviously, were receptive to the gospel. Hey, a new way, a new beginning, equality. So God works in littleness. So the question for you and for me then is, am I receptive and do I recognize God working in my life in little ways or am I always looking for him in grandiose ways? How do I see God working? I remember a friend of mine was having challenges with his kids, in particular with one daughter. And he was making a retreat, and he was really, really upset about this. And he's looking over a bridge at the water, the stream going underneath, and he, and he sees a twig. 
and the twig is caught on a, on a bigger stick. And the water is flowing down and the twig just is stuck. And my friend is, is looking at that twig. He's thinking, he's thinking. And then all of a sudden the twig just breaks free. All of a sudden it's flowing down the stream. And he received that as a, as a message from God that, hey, things can seem stuck, but don't give up. And just as that twig, as if it was pushed, all of a sudden started flowing, those things can change for you and for me in our lives as well, because God works in littleness. God works in smallness. God works on the margins. God works in the bottom. And so God comes to us in these ways. And so, you know, we need to be looking in ways perhaps that we haven't been. So we sense the presence of God. So number one, littleness. Secondly, God comes also through faith. Again, we read 27, 1 Corinthians, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God works in foolishness. We've already seen that. The Messiah comes from Nazareth. I mean, the Israeli community would never understand that. They just thought that was silly. How can that be? And particularly, the message of the cross. Notice verse 18. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God like that, an interesting being saved, being reformed, an ongoing journey. Those who are being saved, it is the power of the cross. And so we still don't get the message of the cross. We still wonder how that works. How can the Son of God come and die on a cross? Here we are 2,000 years later and we still don't get it. To the Jews, it was a scandal that the Christ, the Messiah, would be crucified. And to the, Greek, to the Greeks and the Romans, it was, again, it was just silliness. How, how could that be? They were, they were a class society where power and dominance were key. And Paul talks about the cross. Jesus dies on the cross. And so I think that one of the challenges that we have is that we, we want to understand everything. We want to know completely how it works. How does it work? The universe is filled up with dark matter, and we want to try to understand, astronomers, cosmologists, how that works. So we try to understand everything when really what Paul is saying, the message of the cross requires faith. It is what the Gospel of John says when Jesus says you have to believe. That you can't control everything. There's going to be stuff in our spiritual journeys that we don't get. We honestly don't get. We don't understand how that works. We don't understand how there can be so much suffering in the world and death in the world. How can, how can God allow that? We just don't get it. And then we get upset. And then we say God isn't there. But the, the message is always the cross, and the cross is we don't get it all. God dies on a cross in Jesus Christ. Who would figure that out? Your salvation and mine is determined 
by the cross. The cross overcomes evil. The cross overcomes the evil powers of the universe. We don't get that. You don't get that. We can question it all we want. We won't understand it completely. Paul says faith. Jesus says, hey man, if you have faith, you can move that mountain out there. So it is about faith. It is about our yes to God's yes. And we don't understand God's yes. But we're still required and invited to say it. Yes. So God comes towards us, but he comes towards us in this way that calls for faith. The world may call it foolishness. And God is saying, will you be open to me? Even though all your questions aren't being answered. Even though there's lots of questions. Remember last week we talked about the idea of discipline. We don't like to think that God disciplines us. Surely he's got better things to do than to discipline me in my little life. But God disciplines us because he loves us. He treats us as his children. So how does that discipline take place? We have to be open. We have to be receptive. In our disappointments, probably with the discipline, there's going to be some level of disappointment. So can we receive a disappointment and recognize that, hey, maybe God is creating something here that is new, new opportunities, even though I don't see them right now, and they don't make a lot of sense. God comes in littleness. God comes in faith. Man, it requires faith. Faith for you, faith for me, and not just at one time in our life, all the way through our life. We can have faith when we're 12 years old. Well, we have faith when we're 52. Faith, all the way through the journey. God is saying yes. It's required. We need it. It's the only way we get there, man. Saying yes to God. And the beauty of all this is people all around the world can say yes. It's not based on power. It's not based on credentials. It's not based on how smart I am or you are. It's simply saying yes to God, yes to Jesus. Everybody can do that. Thirdly, God comes towards us in love. So we go to jump to 1 Corinthians 1, 30, 31. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. I like that, source of your life who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Your righteousness and mine, your sanctification is mean, mean being made right with God. That comes from God. Our righteousness, our sanctification and our redemption. It's all based on God. It's not based on you and me and how great we are or what we've achieved. Forget it. It means diddly squat. It's based on God and what he's done for us in Christ. And it is love. So Paul summarizes this love in verse 30. Righteousness, holiness, redemption. Jesus is the source of our life. So love gives us life. And God is working in us so that we will know in an ongoing way this life. It's, it's part of the mystery. Christ breaks through the, the death barrier and so will we. Well, we don't get that. 
And the reason for all that is that it's ultimately gift. There's no room for boasting. And you, your life, my life, there's no boasting. You know what? The prophets knew that years ago. Jeremiah says the same thing. Thus says the Lord, do not let the wise boast in their wisdom. Do not let the mighty boast in their might. Do not let the wealthy boast in their wealth. But let those who boast, boast in this, that they understand and know me, that I am the Lord and I act with, what? Steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. So no boasting about how smart we are, how many degrees we might have, how much money we have, how powerful I may be, how strong I am. Right now, you know, I'm in the midst of watching Suits. Have you ever watched Suits? This program had a number of seasons, seven or eight seasons, and it's about lawyers in New York, in in the core, the most powerful place on the planet. That's how it's depicted. And they're all wearing these nice suits. And the whole thing is based on power. The whole thing is based on one lawyer beating another lawyer. And they're all treating each other badly. They yell at each other. They might even fight. It's all based on might and strength and power. And only over the series do the characters start softening and realizing that that kind of might and abusing one another doesn't really work. They don't grow as individuals. We can be like that. We think it's based on money or power, strength. Boasting in the wrong thing. So Paul here writes that we're not to boast on such things. What we're about is love. And so the best way for you and for me to be receptive to God coming down towards us is to say yes to his love. And that means to respond in love, to say yes. It's why worship is so important. Because worship is saying yes. It's opening our hearts to God and saying, yes, I love you. I adore you. I want to know you, worship you. You are worthy of my worship. Give you worth. And so we're invited to say yes, to love him. That's the best way. That's the best way, man. You want to know God more, then love him more. It's not that hard. Pretty easy. Say yes. And not only God, but to love others. To love other believers. Other believers who can bug you. Other believers who can get under your skin. It's okay. People are people. We're all people. We are going to rub each other. But Paul is saying, Christ invites us to love, does he not? Even love your enemies. Love one another. Show our love and service, gratitude, wherever we are. That's our response. God comes towards us in littleness. God comes towards us in faith. And then God comes towards us in love. The more you love others, the more you will know God's love. We're shaped by the potter, saying yes in love. I've used this line a few times in the last little bit, where there is no love, put love, and you will find love, John of the Cross. It's interesting that that little statement is perhaps the best-known statement of John of the Cross. He wrote in the 1500s. Whoops, there goes my Bible. No worries. 
It's maybe his best known statement, where there is no love, put love and you will find love. So I was looking for that statement. And you know, you can go through all the writings of John of the Cross and you will not find that statement. And finally, you find it in a personal correspondence with a friend. And John writes this at the very end, the last sentence of that little letter. Where there is no love, put love, and you will find love. And to me, that speaks again of littleness. 500 years later, the statement that is the biggest of John of the Cross isn't even found in his writings. It's found in a little letter. But that's what we remember. So what are people going to remember about you? What are people going to remember about me? You know, it's probably going to be some little thing somewhere. Some action of love, some word of love. God comes in littleness. God comes in faith. God mostly comes in love. May we hear God's voice this week in what he is saying to us. Where there is no love, put love, and you will find love. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know how.